Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And happy election day um, to the Americans who, who are listening to this. And um, I, I really hope things go well for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I hope everybody is maybe listening to this while you wait in line to vote or in celebration for casting your vote. Either way. Yeah, you can probably listen to a couple a couple of episodes um, while you wait. Mm-hmm. Some people, anyway. Yeah, yeah. this is our four, 14th episode. Perfect to listen to them all to pass the time while you wait to cast your ballot. <laughs> and uh, this this episode's category has been uh, democratically decided um, by mm-hmm. you, the listeners. Um, we're going to be talking about Best Actress again. Uh, the Best Actress... Uh, in a leading role category of 1960, um, which which nominees do we have for this year? Well, we have Greer Garson. That's the presidential uh, film of this year, um, Sunrise at Campobello. Uh, then we have Deborah Kerr in The Sundowners, Shirley MacLaine in The Best Picture of 1960, The Apartment, Melina Mercury in Never on Sunday, and the winner, Elizabeth Taylor in Butterfield 8. Okay, so uh, let's get on with it. Let's talk about everybody's favourite, Greer Garson, uh, in Sunrise at Campobello. Um, yes. Greer Garson won, mm. won the National Board of Review uh, Best Actress Award, and she won the Golden Globe going into the Oscars um, for Best Actress how did you feel about this film and her in it? Um, oh, I I thought you know that she was just amazing and just a, such a um, a deep and meaningful character and just such sensitive. I'm no, it was awful. Um, <laughs> I no, I couldn't keep that up. Um, yes, I'm sorry. I love Greer Garson, as everybody knows, but this was a chore. And, uh, well, it was fun to see, um, where Freddie Mercury, uh, where Rami Malek got his inspiration for, <laughs> uh, Freddie Mercury. But other than that, it, this was, a uh, quite a slog to get through. I, I thought so anyway, I didn't know that she won the national board of review. I did know about the golden globe, um, but had to be kind of a sentimental vote. I'm thinking. Yeah, well, this was a big comeback for her. Um, but you do have to wonder about this film. It begins, and it's it's very TV movie-ish, uh, even for mm-hmm. 1960. And, you know, you have to wonder about the budget for this because none of these actors were particularly huge in 1960. Um, they'd all kind mm-hmm. of been, kind of had their heyday in the 30s and 40s. Um Ralph Bellamy and Hume Cronin as well. Um, And it is very much a comeback vehicle for both the leads in this. And I was very fearful when we get that very cheap looking panorama view of the the yacht at the beginning and the music. And it just feels like we're about to watch something like the Swiss Family Robinson. Like it's a very weird way to start the film because the entire film pretty much is set in doors uh, with people talking in rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, which is kind of a shame because they did kind of Campobello was their haven of sorts. Um, but 
the film leaves that place fairly quickly. Um, but yeah, it, in terms of her performance, it does feel very dressed up and it does feel quite artificial with the prosthetic teeth and the voice which just goes through several keys and registers in one sentence sometimes you know you kind of think what was mm-hmm. she what was she going for with that voice well it it seemed to me that both she and ralph bellamy were just kind of going for impressions of the people they were playing rather than actually playing them yeah it seemed to me that they like studied newsreel or or um interviews and things like that and just kind of doing them rather than playing them and that just gave it a very stodgy like you say tv movie-ish feel that just kind of killed any sense of drama that i can't you know it's hard for me to imagine there was any sense of drama in this script to begin with but (laughs) um any that was there i think was kind of ruined by the way they approached the characters yeah yeah, I, I found it distracting. I, I really found the image of her distracting in this. And I do think there is some characterization going on uh, from her. And I don't think it's a terrible performance. Because um, there is stuff going on, but what is going on is quite narrow. And, you know, much of the performance is her being distressed, but putting on a brave face. Uh, for her husband and children and um, that's very much in keeping with how people view Eleanor Roosevelt still I think as some sort of stoic figure um, yeah, matriarch of sorts um, and but that isn't particularly new for Greer Garson as an actress no yeah it was kind of the natural extension of her uh, the persona that she had developed I did. I mean, I did enjoy her presence in it sometimes, but and it is like nice to have a break from Ralph Bellam, Ralph Bellamy's like <laughs> shameless scenery chewing in this. Well, apparently, um, Gergarson wanted Marlon Brando to play FDR. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, I'm trying to imagine how that would have gone. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a mismatch in terms of um, he was still pretty attractive in 1960. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, Greer and I guess, what, late 50s in this? Something like that, yeah. I, I don't think that would have gone down well. I think that would have been a little bit uh, difficult to believe. Yeah, I agree. What did you think of the comedy in the film? Because there is some comedy. There is some, but most of the time it kind of, I felt it was a little too just broad and overplayed. Um, mm. I did smile and I did laugh even at some points, especially with um, Hume Cronin's character is just a curmudgeon delight most of the time. But even his character kind of overstayed his welcome for me. I mean, the movie is very, very long. Yes. And so any goodwill that I kind of had towards it because of some of the lot more lighthearted, funny moments just eventually dissipated and I was just ready for it to be done. Yeah, you do get some nice 
bits of comedy. I think like especially where she does that terrible speech and mm-hmm. she makes the joke about the corset and the talking afterwards and he's like, Where did you get that corset joke? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that sequence is funny and I I feel like I I wish there was more of that because as a film it's awfully self serious and it's taking itself so damn seriously. And you just kind of think well, you just lighten up and you know it was just all very pleasant and pleasantness mixed with overwrought drama and there wasn't much to hold on to really uh, yeah and that was yeah that was basically my takeaway as well and i was also kind of annoyed that it was called sunrise at campobello when they only make reference to the sunset in the movie yeah. You know, at the beginning, he's like, oh, there's nothing better than the sunset at Campobello. And I'm like, oh, okay. So later in the movie, they're going to talk about the sunrise. And they never did. And that just let me down. <laughs> that must be something from the book that obviously hasn't made it into the film. Um, I imagine so, yeah. I want to mention this one scene um, where Gria Garson is telling a bedtime story to her kids and she's really stressed and um she's got to make the speech and um her husband's ill and she's worried about her husband and her nerves are you know sort of on a high wire and she's telling the story to kids she's starting to cry and then she breaks down and runs off which is quite bad acting uh, on her part <laughs> Mm-hmm. But then, but did you see the kid's face, the little child actor's face reaction to it? Yeah, it was just like <laughs> open mouth, like what's she doing? Yeah, <laughs> it was like such a what, like you could tell that it wasn't acting from the child. You could tell the child's like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought it was so hilarious, and that's really not what we should have been thinking at that point. Um if the film was to be successful. Yeah. Yeah, I know that was a pretty funny, (laughs) pretty funny moment. Uh, Anything more about Garson or the film? Uh, Overall, no. Um, Like I said, it just kind of existed for me for a little while, and I don't think it's going to stay with me very long. Um, And I, I don't think I would have nominated uh, Greer Garson for this performance. I mean, I get that it was a comeback and I get that it was a vehicle in that regard, so it was kind of designed to get an Oscar nomination, but I, I still don't think I would have uh, would have given it to it. Yeah, I have to agree. I have to agree. Uh, poss- well, I'm trying to think, is it the worst of her nominations? Because um, I'm not a fan of Mrs. Parkington, um, but certainly at the bottom of the barrel, yeah, mm-hmm. for her. I actually, I actually haven't seen uh, Mrs. Parkington yet. That's the one of her nominee nominations that I haven't seen yet. We'll get to it eventually. I'm sure we will. Yeah, given the popularity of Best Actress on this podcast, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll get to it. Okay, uh, let's move on to Deborah Kerr. Uh, whose final nomination uh, came in this year for the Sundowners? Uh, mm-hmm. How did you like the Sundown? The Sundowners. Did you like it? 
Um, I did. Yeah. Um, it's not. I don't think it's anything spectacular, but I think it's a nice little story. I think yeah. it's looking past some of the shaky accent work. Um, at some points, I think that you know Robert Mitchum. Let's face it, was not a gifted accent performer. Um, but I think that he and Deborah Kerr do very well together. And I think I like Peter Ustinov as the kind of um, snooty British comic relief. Yes. I, I liked, I liked this movie. I liked it a lot. Yeah. And I liked Deborah Kerr in it. Yeah. I think the film really does benefit from a, a great cast. Uh, I, I liked it too. Um, but I think, Mitchum, Ustinov, and uh, Glynis Johns as well, I think is very good, who got nominated. She's like mm-hmm. quite a bubbly presence. And I think the film as a whole is very cuddly and easy to like. And, you know, we've just been talking about a film that's such an utter chore. Um, so this is completely the opposite. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is something a little bit different for Deborah Kerr. Uh, She's used to playing quite noble and saintly women, but this is probably a more ragged interpretation of that um, than she usually gives. It's a bit looser in its execution uh, and all the better for being looser, I think. I think there's there's something quite uh, earthly and real about her portrayal in this that she, she didn't always feel as real in some of the other roles she played. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. It's kind of a, it's very different from the um, kind of overwrought emotion of separate tables or the, or the lofty uh, presence of King and I or Heaven Knows Mr. Allison and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I really liked her in this and I liked that kind of down to earth uh, character and the portrayal that she gives it. And I like her accent. I think she actually um, does a pretty credible Australian accent. Yeah, I, I can't complain about her accent at all, to be honest. Um, maybe people in Sydney might disagree with that, but... Sure, yeah. Australian accent's not really popular in the Best Actress category. It'd be Meryl Streep, I think, in Cry in the Dark, but I can't think of many Australian roles in Best Actress. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I, I just think she's she's got this very homely maternal presence. I like that the character has her own voice. Um, and Kerr acts the part with, you know, in a natural way. Uh, and sort of women in that era did accept their husband's word was final. And she accepts that it's final. But I love how she makes the characters fight for some kind of stability not come off as a flat rejection of of the life that they live in in the first place um mm-hmm. i think she she kind of tells the story of maybe they've been doing it for years and this is a natural end to where this couple have been heading um even though mm-hmm. she she kind of enjoys that life herself really um and i i, I couldn't doubt the history between the couple it, it did feel like they've been married for 20 years yeah, absolutely. And I, I like that we kind of get that whole history without a lot of exposition or anything. Um, we're put into kind of the end game of their nomadic lifestyle, but we we get all of that 
backstory just from the way they are around each other and the what things they say um i think in that regard the script is very very good at delivering us this couple with such a rich and long history together and we buy it without needing a lot of explicit backstory yeah yeah i I hadn't thought of that actually but we don't get a lot of backstory at all do we yeah Mm -mm. uh what do you think about the way the film looks because the i think they did go to australia (laughs) yeah yeah um i think fred zinnemann uh fought hard to get a shot on location i think it uh definitely definitely benefits the film looks great and I like that they took some time to get some B-roll footage of all the little critters down there to kind of <laughs> fill out fill out the landscape. Um, yeah, I like the way it looks a lot. And it, it so much better use of the color and the landscape than, for example, Campobello did. Yeah, you've got uh, koala bears and kangaroos, dingoes. Um... Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, the basically the top three animals that anybody outside of Australia would name if you asked them <laughs> what animals live in Australia. So yeah. th- they knew what they were doing. Uh, yeah, there's there's quite there is quite a big commitment to realism. Um, you know, Robert Mitchum, she is a sheep. <laughs> yeah, very credible as a as a sheep shearer. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how many takes that took. And I mean, I wouldn't know if he was doing it badly, so maybe they just filmed him doing it and cut it together, and that was it. Yeah, that poor sheet was in agony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if they like tranquilized them or gave them some kind of sedative or something. But yeah, they, yeah, those sheep had a rough time. <laughs> I think my. I did like the film. I think my, the weakness of the film for me is I do feel like it's maybe a little bit of a sugar-coated representation of nomadic people. Um, for sure. Especially, especially having seen Nomadland uh, this year, and which is just a lot more realistic. And, uh, you know, this was 60 years ago, so we have to cut it some slack. Um, mm-hmm. But I do feel like the lifestyle isn't always a choice and for all that the couple go through they never feel particularly destitute and that's something that disappointed me i, I do think i do think it doesn't show they're scrimping enough um mm-hmm. and i do think the story beats are quite apart from the sheep shearing quite <laughs> uh predictable and you can pretty much anticipate what's going to happen from one scene to the next yeah yeah even even when they are completely out of money and no prospects they're just like robert mitchum just well we'll find something and then they do so yeah it's definitely a very um sanitized version you're right of the of the kind of itinerant lifestyle i have not yet seen nomadland but obviously i'm very much looking forward to it after all the positive press it's got. Anything more, Deborah Kerr? Nope. Um, we'll we'll come back to her uh, when we get to listener questions. But for now, uh, for now, I think I'm I think I'm good. Okay. Uh, what we got next? Who have we got next? I think we've got Shirley MacLaine in the apartment. 
I mean, what this I've seen this movie so many times and been so uh, enamored by all the performances in it, and Shirley MacLaine is no exception. I I love her in this movie so much. I I liked her. Um, I didn't like the film so much. Um, really, and this this is going to get me shot. Um, <laughs> Because this film's beloved, um, but I do have a lot of misgivings about it, and it's. I'm just kind of thinking: is it a critique of sexism in the workplace, or is that just a backdrop for the love story? Like, I feel like, I feel like the female characters, including Shirley MacLaine's, is uh, like they're all problematic to me. None of them seem to have any independence. Um, and all we really learn about them is how they relate to a man. And mm-hmm. I I just kind of struggled with that. And I just, like McLean, for instance, uh, I forget the name of the character now. What's the name of Fran, the uh, Fran Kubelik. Fran. Fran Kubelik. So she's, you know, she's really blinkered in a love for Mr. Is it Drake Sheld? Drake Sheld? Mr. Uh, what is it? Well, Fred McMurray, we can call him Fred, Fred McMurray. Murray, yeah. So she's she's sort of like frustrated and she's blinking in love for him. But then she's happy to just drop him at the end. And I think, well, I think it's too instant. And I think the script needed a rework. I think there's too much of Lemon at the beginning. And the romance almost feels like an afterthought. You know, it mm-hmm. kind of feels rushed in, in the last third. It, it does feel kind of rushed. Um. Mm. I don't know. I mean, she didn't... I don't think it's sudden that she drops him. I mean, she tries to commit suicide first, and um, and, and she gets her final break with him at the end, but it didn't, I, it didn't seem too sudden to me. Um, maybe it was a little sudden, just because the film was ending and she needed to be with Jack Lemmon, but um, I don't know. I, I kind of was along with it. Um, Although regarding the sexism in the workplace, I do think that um, it could go either way. I kind of see it as a satire and a critique, but you're right. The the female characters in the film don't generally have a lot of agency or independence, including, yeah, including Fran. That's very true. Yeah, and I really didn't like the um, the secretary that that has, you know, been out with... Fred McMurray, you know, sleeping with him in the past. Yeah, well, she she was a bit of a stereotypical kind of caddy, caddy secretary. Um, yeah, she just comes off as really spiteful, and it, it just didn't give any kind of three-dimensional look to her at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think Fran is not written that well, but I think McLean does the best that she can with this role. And yeah. for me, her best scene is after the overdose and she's she what she does very well is physical more physical actually is sort of a glazed dead behind the eyes look that you can believe from someone who is under well who is undergoing a lot of turmoil in a turmoil mm-hmm. and and B is physically recovering from having taken a lot of sleeping pills and must feel dreadful yeah. Like anyone who's ever had a terrible, terrible hangover can look at Shirley MacLaine in this film and think, yes, <laughs> that is encapsulates everything about the morning after. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. What do you think about how 
her chemistry with Jack Lemon. I think they have a very cute chemistry together. I believe their, um, I like their elevator flirtation, and then when it's when they have to spend so much time alone in the apartment together, um, I like the way their relationship develops, and I like his um, their attitudes towards each other seem to evolve quite uh, honestly in that time. Um, I th- I like I think them very good together. I like their chemistry. Yeah, he's. I mean, I think Jack Lemon is brilliant in this. I think he has a lot of energy, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting how his performance is very energetic, and hers is quite lethargic. Um, it's an interesting blend, and I think it works well for the romance. And I think the romance does work. I just think that perhaps the execution of it could be a bit finessed a bit better. Um, but I think, I just think she does get across how miserable Fran is and the, the lack of self-esteem, um, that, that men can put on to women, uh, yeah. especially in this, in this era, especially I would think. And yeah, I, I thought there was a lot of depth. Um, it would be interesting to see how much screen time she has. Cause I feel like it's not probably not as much as the other nominees we're going to talk about she's on 51 minutes but uh yeah percentage wise it is the shortest performance of the nominees uh about 40 percent yeah okay yeah it was interesting I, I kind of the film's like interesting in terms of looking at the workplace and i guess mad men has done this since but uh, you know in terms of the time it's it's probably a film willing to confront things that others wouldn't about how sexist the workplace is. And mm-hmm. So I do think that's commendable on the part of Billy Wilder. And I love how uh, his idea for the film came from watching Brief Encounter and uh, yeah. wondering how it was that they conducted their affair in the first place. You know, where had they gone? And I believe Billy Wilder won three Oscars for this. Is that was that a record at the time? Um, it may be a record. Yeah, uh, yeah. He took home picture director and writing. Uh, was he the first to get that hat trick? I think. Yeah, I think he might have been. Um, this is regarded as a classic, though. So you kind of mm-hmm. agree with that assessment? I do. Yeah, um, I definitely think that it deserved the accolades that it got and probably deserved a few more besides um the acting in it is fantastic like you say jack lemon is just so energetic and um great that even in bud's kind of more problematic moments he's still likable because he's jack lemon um and yeah like i said shirley mclean does such a great job i think yeah maybe there are, I mean, I definitely agree with the issues that you bring up, but I definitely agree that it, it earned its classic status, for sure. All right, uh, shall we move on to the the foreign nominee? Yeah. The first foreign best actress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Melina Mercury, half Greek, half uh, English performance and Never on Sunday. I'd never seen this movie before, and it was quite delightful, I have to say. I really enjoyed wow. watching it. Yeah, 
Yes, Makuri won Best Actress at Cannes for this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's fair to say that she was quite unsettled by her Oscar nomination. Uh, I think the studio wanted her to go to Hollywood to campaign for for the Oscar win, Mm -hmm. uh, which she couldn't understand. And I think there was an editorial written complaining, you know, why have they nominated a a Greek actress over an American? And... Mm. uh, do you think the performance has deserved the nomination? Um, I do. I think that she has a very, um, a very unique energy that she brings to the screen. I think that she imbues the character of Ilya with such life and deceptive, uh, deceptive depth. You know, which despite the fact that Jules Dassin's character can't see it, I think we see it that this is a genuinely happy character. And I liked that the the movie kind of subverted the, well, the Butterfield 8 kind of story where this free-spirited woman turns out to be dead inside and, you know, destitute and on the verge of suicide or whatever. No, she's just a genuinely happy person, just full of life, and everybody loves her. And I, I think she played it to perfection. I agree. I think she's great, and it's it's interesting that there's so many uh, ladies of the night, shall we say, involved in this <laughs> year with them, um, mm-hmm. with uh, Elizabeth Taylor also and um, Shirley Jones winning Best Supporting Actress. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I I think the whole thing is I liked the film this time. I didn't like it the first time, and this time I laughed a lot, and I. It really endeared itself to me, and I th- I love how the film seems to be about you know subverting expectations and stereotypes. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I like everything. I didn't know that this was Jules Dassin the first time I watched it either. Like in in the lead role, because uh, mm-hmm. I assumed he was French, but you know. he certainly made a lot of French movies. <laughs> yeah but i like that she keeps you know you know his his consternation that you know she's not just some cultureless gutter snipe of a woman and you know she keeps subverting his expectations and there's some really great comedy you know he asks her uh where she learns so many different languages and she says in bed <laughs> um and it's kind of like the film is constantly mocking Homer uh, for being stuffy and unadventurous and you know that it's kind of this idea of somebody believing that they know about life through books um, without having lived yeah. uh, experienced much um, and that's fine I don't think that I would have an issue with that if I, if I thought it mocked educated people and you know, discouraged people from doing that, which I don't think it does. Um, no, not at all. If it just makes fun of that kind of stuffy, um, ostentatious, I think as somebody on Twitter put it, the mansplaining before mansplaining was a thing, you know? <laughs> That's a good way of saying. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely, the first part of the movie, I was prepared to not really like it when it became clear what Homer's mission was 
because I was expecting the cliched ending where he's right and, you know, Ilya realizes the error of her ways. But then the more it subverted it, the more I realized, oh, no, you know, they're doing something good here. And I, and I got into it and I liked it from that point on. So I liked that the screenplay kind of um, kept subverting those expectations. Yeah, I do like I do think Elia's self-reflection in the the last sort of act of the film is like a bit difficult to believe um given how McCurry has played the character up to then and there is the scene at the theater which seems to tip her off the edge and force her to think about herself but I kind of feel like that's a little bit schematic um that was really the only thing that that let it down for me I would have kind of liked something else to to trigger that in her or maybe you know something else to that would suggest maybe she might leave the profession you know um Mm -hmm. but but this like the Medea the interpretation of Medea is one of the funniest things I've seen in a while Mm -hmm. where she recalls the story of Medea in you know completely in her perspective the film actually quite feminist in the way that she interprets the story as well um Mm -hmm. and just homer's appalled reaction to it is just comedy gold yeah and i like i like that the movie ends with him just going away defeated and everybody just continuing on their merry life and i like the him just throwing his notes over the side of the boat just like giving up it's such a perfect end for that character. <laughs> what do you think? Because part of me was thinking, it did, does Makuri feel too much in her own bubble? Um, does the character feel too much in her own bubble? Or is that important for the story? You know, she is quite passive in the film, even though she's front and centre of it and in nearly every scene. The character is quite passive and things go by her and she doesn't show much uh, concern. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of, that's kind of her whole thing, right? Um, She goes with the flow and she, she enjoys what's in front of her. She enjoys Homer when he's entertaining and when he stops being entertaining, she, you know, gets rid of him. And, And I think I liked her in her bubble and just kind of, watching the world go by and taking what enjoyment from it she wants. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful performance. And uh, maybe one of the pure... I think Ava Garden in Magambo is a comparison here where I think the sheer charisma um, of the performance is so winning um, that you can't really help but be enthralled by it. I think... It's, there's just so much life in it and yeah. um it it's kind of lovely that uh it's lovely that a foreign actress was finally nominated in this category but perhaps not surprising that it took something this this you know sheer delightful and you know such a galvanizing turn to to, to really convince hollywood that there's more out there yeah, yeah, I agree. And they definitely got the message because as, as we pointed out 
in our trivia, there were five, there were four more nominees in the foreign language category in the 60s alone. Not the foreign language category, but foreign language nominees for Best Actress. Yes, and one win. And a win, yeah, the very next year, Sophia Loren. Well, not the very next year, was it? Two years later, sorry. And did Never on Sunday win the foreign language? or did I know it got four nominations, I think. Um, no, it was... Um... It was nominated for... Well, Jules Dassin got a double nomination for director and screenplay. Um, and then it was also nominated... I think it was nominated in uh, one of the technical categories, uh, costume design. It was nominated in costume design, but no, it doesn't get, doesn't get a foreign language film nomination. And it was the next year that Sophia Loren won. It wasn't two years later. I was right the first time, so... Oops. <laughs> Okay, uh, shall we talk about this year's winner? Yeah, yeah why not? <laughs> uh, this is Elizabeth Taylor in Butterfield 8. Um, Elizabeth Taylor said of Butterfield 8, This is the most pornographic script I have ever read. This woman is a nymphomaniac. I don't want to play her. Um, but she had to play her. Yeah. She had to do one last film for MGM under her contract before she went off and did Cleopatra. And uh, and it had to be this one. Um, how did you feel about the material? You know, this is... I'm kind of surprised that this was written in 1935. Um, how how kind of sordid does it feel, given, given that? I think it... Um, it feels kind of less sordid than... I guess I was expecting the material to be. Um, it definitely, you know, uses some harsh language and presents some scenarios that are a little risque, um, especially for 1960 and Hollywood. But overall, I, I felt the material was very kind of, kind of trying to keep a distance from its own subject matter um, in a lot of respects. I have, yeah. what do you think? Well, I think like the tagline is something like uh, follow Gloria from the first man to the last. And then I was kind of thinking, well, where are all the men? Like there's, there's only Lawrence Harvey and the other man in it she doesn't sleep with. So yeah. I was kind of waiting for all the men to come. But I, I think the film's very good at telling us how much of a slut Gloria is. Uh, without exhibiting much of that, like apart from a sleazy stop at the motel, there's not really that much to say that she's such a tramp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, mainly just talked about. Yeah. Do Do you think? How do you think the fact that Taylor felt uh, hated the the script? Do you think you can tell from the performance? Um, it seems pretty listless. Um, yeah. Mm. And the, I mean, just the script itself is pretty listless in a lot of ways. Like we, I, I was, I knew I was in trouble when it just opened with like six minutes or seven minutes of her just wandering around Lawrence Harvey's apartment after the credits. Like she's just asleep for the credits. Then she wakes up and just wanders around <laughs> and it's like, that should have been the credits. If you'd put the credits over her wandering around, that's okay. 
but it just was yeah. so lagru- so slow and so laggardly that I just and then she finally leaves but to do what to go to her friend's how her real life husband's house and have her have him ex you know give us some exposition about what a horrible tramp she is you know again we don't see it but we have to have another character just kind of tell her and at the same time tell us yeah it's it's really it is a bad script and it does feel underdeveloped and you're kind of watching scenes between Taylor and Eddie Fisher, who were married at this time, and uh, you kind of think you, I'm not that bothered about this, you know. I'm. Why are we? Why are we watching these people argue over, you know, how much of a slut she is? I, it, it just felt like really extraneous and dull. And I did going back to the performance. I think you can feel some of the contempt in the performance, and I do think it's actually beneficial for the performance because. She sort of, she's quite coarse with it, and matter of fact, and I think that at least gives Gloria some, an element of depth and an element of interest in the fact that she's willing to be so frank about it, Mm -hmm. but it feels like maybe that's a decision on the part of Taylor to just be, um, to just rattle off the script with barely a moment's thought. Yeah. It's not even worth worth the patience. It's not even worth the digging into at all. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, in a way, you're right. It does kind of fit the character. But in another way, it just feels like, yeah, she just wanted to get through it. And I think I read that she didn't speak with the director throughout the production. So it's not like they had any conversations about what the character was actually doing or where she was coming from. So, yep, just kind of delivered the lines and moved on to do the same thing in Cleopatra. Well, that's unprofessional. She should speak to the director because it's not his fault. I agree. I agree. But something tells me that she wasn't always the most professional actress to work with. Um, And maybe, maybe this in particular was just, I mean, you have to feel bad for the position she was in having to do a movie that she didn't want to just to get out of a contract and and all the sh- stuff that was going on in her personal life that was becoming so all-consuming. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't in a great she wasn't in a great place and that also I guess can also be beneficial to this particular performance, but at the same time I kind of get why she might not have put everything she had into this. Yeah, I I just think the irony is that uh, I don't think Butterfield 8 is any worse than Cleopatra, to be honest. Uh, No, I I agree. It's actually, I like it better than Cleopatra. At least it has Lawrence Harvey in it. I mean, that he kept me going through the film. I love Lawrence Harvey. He's playing a cad, and that's just what he was born to play. (laughs) And when he... When he gets nasty, I don't think there's anybody better at being nasty than Lawrence Harvey. It it um, did strike me in this film that if Sean Connery hadn't been James Bond, Lawrence Harvey would have been perfect for James Bond. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Like the film, I think the film has its moments. I do think psychologically there's some sense in it. I'd forgotten the child abuse element, actually, which 
does make some kind of sense, even though I don't like the way that it's delivered in the film. Um, I think the way that uh, Gloria treats men and the whole power struggle, the power and control she wants, and you know, she really just completely ensnares Lawrence Harvey. And there's this scene where she mm-hmm. she goes into the, she makes him think that she's going to buy him an attaché case, and then they go in and she she buys it for her friend instead, and um, mm-hmm. and then she surprises Lawrence Harvey with something else. And you could just see the character playing, you know, playing games, and um, there is that element of control. Which is why I couldn't really understand why the film wanted to shame Gloria so much. Because I think there is an element of control. She is controlling who she wants to sleep with in certain ways. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, there is some intuition in, in the film and in the performance even. Um, despite the the silliness and the... The ending was particularly silly. Yeah, the ending was ridiculous. And did you notice the horrible continuity error too, where the car drives through the barrier in the wide shot, and like a couple seconds later, it cuts to a close up of her, and she drives through it again. No, I didn't see that. I didn't notice. Yeah, it was so. I mean, I hate, I hate that kind of sloppy editing work, and it just. So easy to correct, so easy to catch, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess what it, especially watching this after Never on Sunday and the two films approach to their, you know, their female leads, this film is just so moralizing and it's like taking, it would be like taking Homer's side in Never on Sunday and turning out to be, and him turning out to be right. Yeah. In this, it's like, yeah, she's, like I wrote in my notes, sexual liberation equals bad. Got it. It's like, that's the message of this film. She's sleeping with a lot of men. Therefore, she must hate herself and have a horrible backstory. And that's exactly what happens. She turns out to be kind of self-loathing. And she has this horrible experience that led her to (gasps) sleep with men. You know, multiple men that she wasn't going to marry. And it just, yeah seemed very overwrought and very forced in that regard. And that's why it just elevated Never on Sunday so much more to me to have the courage to not do that in an era when that was just kind of the norm. Okay, so we have a ton of listener questions. Thank you thank you to you guys for uh, asking us so many interesting questions this week. Uh, we're going to begin uh, with a question from Catherine Short. Uh, she asks, Deborah Kerr, paired with Robert Mitchum for the second time in The Sundowners, he would later describe her as his favourite leading lady. Do you think they had great chemistry? And if you have seen it, how do you think this compares to Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, which is their other film together? Um, I have to admit, I have never seen all of Heaven Knows Mr. Allison. I caught the first half on TCM once, but I've never seen how it ends. So, <laughs> but in the half, in the half that I've seen, they're great. You know, um, I do think they have great chemistry together. I think that they complement each other really well, especially in this one. Um, because as we were talking about earlier, her kind of more earthbound 
performance pairs well with Mitchum, who kind of was always very earthy and very, you know, unelevated, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I do think they have great chemistry, and I really wish they'd done more movies together. Yeah, I, I certainly think they've got great chemistry in the Sundowners. Uh, it's fine in Heaven Knows Mr. Allison. Um, it, it's a little forced, but I think that may be to do with the script. The script's very much like these people get stuck together and how can we, you know, converge them. So it's better in the Sundowners, mm-hmm. but they, they certainly worked well together. Yeah. Uh, Ronaldo Sosa asks, have you seen El Megantri and would you have nominated Gene Simmons for it? I have seen El Megantri and spoiler alert for when we talk about snubs, but yeah, I I probably would have nominated Gene Simmons uh, for Best Actress for that one. Yeah, I would not. Um, no? No, just because, I mean, I'll be honest, she's not my favourite actress. Uh, I did really like her in the happy ending, the uh, her lead nomination, the late sixties, um, which is a little different. I think in the early sixties she was still learning for me from what the films that I've seen. But mm-hmm. I have to admit I didn't like her character in Elmer Gantry. I thought she was annoying, but I did like her. So and considering that it got a whole bunch of other and two. And won two other Oscars. I think that I would have thought that would have kind of carried her into a nomination just based on that. Yeah, it does. It does seem a little surprising. Hmm. Uh, Ronaldo also asks, uh, "Would you agree that Greg Garson <laughs> in Sunrise at Campobello is one of the worst performances ever nominated for an Oscar?" I don't know if he means in all categories or just Best Actress. What do you think? <laughs> Um, certainly one of the worst I've seen recently, but one of the worst of all time, I don't know if it would crack the top or bottom 10 for me. Um, I've seen, (laughs) I've seen plenty of worst performances that won Oscars. So I don't think that, um, I don't think Greer getting a late career nod is the, it's hardly the worst travesty for me. What about you? Yeah, I, I don't think it's particularly terrible because um, I think at least she's trying to create a character and do something with it, even if it doesn't pay off. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, some of the worst that come to mind, I would say Mary Pickford in Coquette is awful. Yeah, um, yeah Mary Pickford is awful. Um, Ali McGraw, we talked about. Oh, yeah. Ali McGraw was bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Everybody was bad and love story they got three oscar nominations in acting i don't understand it um and in in recent years i mean we plenty of people have talked about rami malek's performance being very undeserved yes Um, and he won you know so yeah there's definitely worse performances than greer garson you could everybody should find stop picking on greer garson all right she (laughs) She was all right. Yeah, there's there's so many more, and it's not as if she took the place of someone amazing, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, there's been some terrible ones. Angelina mm. Jolie, I think, is terrible in Changeling, but yeah. we could go on and on. 
keep going. Good. Good. Maybe one day we'll, that'll be a, a special episode, just uh, the, our bottom, our top 10 worst Oscar-nominated performances. Oh, that's an idea. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> okay. Uh, Owen Daly asks, do you think that Janet Leigh, uh, who was nominated in supporting for Psycho uh, in 1960, did she belong in the leading category? Hmm. That's uh, interesting. Um, what do you think of this one? I think, yes. Yeah, I think it's interesting because she is only in about 40 minutes, would you say? Um, for obvious reasons. Uh, but I think hers is the central perspective of the film. And I'm not sure you ever leave that. You know, you you, you do get Vera Miles and the whole attempted investigation thing that happens after, but I still think you kind of left thinking about her and the scenes in the car. She's particularly brilliant, I think, and just introspective thinking and panicking and, you know, what she's just done. So, yeah, I I totally would have been happy to see her in lead, but at least she got nominated somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm happy she got nominated. I'm not sure that I would have considered her a lead, though. I think the more I think about it, because I, w- I was thinking about this when he asked the question and running the film kind of back in my head. Um, I think obviously the film kind of hoodwinks us into thinking she's the lead, but ultimately it's not her story. It begins her story, but then it turns out we're watching somebody else's story all along. So I'm happy she got the nomination, but uh, I think she belongs supporting. Uh, Andy Barrett asks... Uh... He says, this was Deborah Kerr's sixth nomination for the Sundowners and her sixth loss. Any theories as to why she never took home the big trophy? Now, I've, ri- I've written all the people she lost to down. Shall I read them out? Yeah. Yep. So we have Olivia de Havilland in The Heiress, uh, mm-hmm. Audrey Hepburn in Roman Holiday, Ingrid Bergman in Anastasia, Juan Woodward in The Three Faces of Eve, Susan Hayward in I Want to Live, exclamation mark. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Taylor in Butterfield <laughs> 8, obviously, we've discussed. We'll get on to Susan Hayward at another time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's a whole episode. <laughs> I, well, listen, you know, thinking about the film she lost for, um, and I haven't seen Edward, my son. That's the, the only one of her nominees I haven't seen. Um, Me too, yeah. Well, like I said, I, I still have to finish Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, but I, I think I got the gist. Um, <laughs> but I think it's a kind, kind of the similar to Peter O'Toole never winning, a combination of years just being unlucky and years when they were up against people who were just destined to win. Um, yes. And I think, so Audrey Hepburn and Roman Holiday just kind of, just kind of ran away with it, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not going to take an Oscar away from Olivia de Havilland in The Heiress. I mean, and I'd, I'll have to watch Edward, my son, but I can't see myself uh, thinking she deserves it more than de Havilland because she's so amazing in The Heiress. Um, yeah. I haven't seen Anastasia. Uh, have you seen that one? Wow. Okay. But like Ingrid Bergman's royalty, and so I can kind of but- see how she might get some but that's a comeback win uh, right 
after her after she was ostracized for her affair in the 40s that no that's right yeah mm-hmm. so again kind of a destiny kind of thing well it's all about narratives often isn't it and who's got mm-hmm. the best narrative for winning which we might talk about later when we talk about elizabeth taylor yeah um but a lot of these people susan Hayward, overdue um joanne woodward hmm, i'm not sure there was much of a narrative there um but then Kerr's perform Carr's performance is uh, comedy that year, so be less less of a chance because of that. So. Yeah. So um, just bad luck. Are we putting it down to? I would put it down to bad luck. I would also, I mean, talking about lead versus supporting. Um, I'm not sure I would have put her in lead for separate tables. I think, well, that's kind of an ensemble movie anyway. It's kind of all supporting, um, except maybe for Burt Lancaster. So I'm not sure that I would agree with her being nominated for lead actress for that one. Um, Right, yeah. So maybe that's also a factor there. But I I liked Susan Hayward and I Want to Live, so fine with her winning it. And yeah, this year just kind of came up against Elizabeth Taylor and her and her story and her history. So bad luck. I would put it down to bad luck. And it's a shame because uh, she's one of my favorite actresses of that era. And it's, I mean, she eventually did get a, an honorary Oscar in the nineties, but yes, yeah, would have been nice if she got a, a competitive one for sure. Okay. Uh, last question comes from Emily. She asks uh, if Elizabeth hadn't been pity nominated and won, <laughs> Who would you have replaced her spot with? And without spoiling the rankings, what do you think about this one? Um, if she hadn't been pity nominated and won, um, I believe that uh, it probably would have been Deborah Kersier. Um, because of what we were just kind of talking about is kind of a, it's a combination of being due and a very good performance. So I think it probably would have been Deborah Kerr who I would have given it to is a different question, but um, I think it would have been Deborah Kerr would have won. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, my instinct is McLean actually. Uh, yeah. Because the film won. Uh, no, that's true. So my instinct is McLean, but uh, I know that Kerr later said that she thought she should have won this. Uh, mm. Yeah, and I, Taylor has quite uh, been quite vocal about the fact that she didn't deserve to win this. Yeah, I was um, I was watching the video of her winning at the um, at the ceremony, and just when they announce. Before, when they're just announcing the nominees and they show her waiting to hear the winner, she just has this dead-eyed look of wanting Mm. to be literally anywhere else. And then she gives this very short speech because she was still kind of sick at the time and just walks off. It's very, very, very curt. But I think if we talk about who would have replaced her spot in nominations if she hadn't even been nominated... Mm. um, most of my favourites that year are in world cinema, so they're not eligible, like Monica Vitti and uh, Gene Seberg. Um, mm. But apart from that, I think like Lily Taylor I would single out for Conspiracy of Hearts, which is 
It's a lovely film about nuns in uh, Italy, and, you know, and the Nazi Nazi occupation, which is very good. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, it's difficult to know who would replace her without talking about the snubs. Yeah, I mean, I might. Yeah, when we get to snubs, we'll talk about who I wish had been nominated. But yeah. Okay, so now the the big question: Why did Elizabeth Taylor win this Oscar? And was it close? Um, Elizabeth Taylor came down with various ailments in the lead up to the nominations and the Oscar ceremony, including uh, she had a blood clot, uh, pneumonia, I think. She had a emergency tracheotomy. Um, and the papers were actively tracking her health every day and it became a huge story. And this is what has been attributed to why she won this Oscar. And it's mm-hmm. difficult to it's difficult to disagree with that really. Yeah. I agree. Um it pretty much they didn't they yeah, they thought she was dying or at the very least done with movies and I guess everybody started to feel bad about the way they'd been treating her and so thought, Oh well maybe this'll help. We'll give her an Oscar. And yeah, I I can't think of another explanation for how she won for this. Yes, yeah, and um, although she had lost three times in a row, um, yeah, mm-hmm. so she could have been considered overdue. Um, yeah, but yeah, considering the film, you know, actors don't often win for films. This sort of despite the fact that the film was a hit, quite a big hit for MGM. Mm-hmm. It wasn't thought of particularly well. Um, so, yeah, it's difficult to see how she would have won without that. And I do feel like McLean or Kerr, uh, Kerr would have taken it. Mm-hmm. Who do you think was snubbed in terms of who was who was sixth in the race, you think? Um, I, I think have it was a, Simmons? Um, probably, but... Um... I'm also thinking maybe Wendy Hiller in Sons and Lovers. Okay, yeah. I mean, that scored a couple of nominations, and she definitely had a very strong performance in that one. I think she could have been in the running. Um, I'm not sure how much of a chance she had, but I think that Emmanuel Riva in Hiroshima Mon Amour had to have been a part of the conversation. Um, I, I love her in that movie, and I like, um, it bothers me that she wasn't nominated for an Oscar for another 50 years um, uh, yeah I that she's a big snub for me this year but also yeah I think Gene Simmons and, and Wendy Hiller were probably up there as well yeah I agree with those three and I want to add to that Doris Day in a Midnight Lace mm. which she got the the, gold, the Golden Globe nomination um, where she plays a woman who's uh, the husband's trying to kill her, basically, and it's it it's a little campy, but it's it's mostly played quite straight by her. And she's she's actually good in it. So and she'd been nominated the year before as well. So mm-hmm. I think she she must have been in the conversation. Yeah, I imagine so. Now now it comes to the moment of truth: the rankings. Yes. Um, do you want to go ahead? 
Sure. I think we we may have slight disagreements here, but let's see. I'm at, yeah, maybe slight, but we'll see. Okay. Um, number five for me is uh, Greer Garson. Um, I feel terrible. Mm-hmm. I really do. But... <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, la- these my heroes are falling. Last last week it was William Wyler at the bottom, and now it's Greer Garson. It's tough. It's a tough couple episodes. Um, number four is Elizabeth Taylor. Um, number three, Deborah Kerr. Number two... Melina McCurry and number one, uh, Shirley MacLaine. Like for all the reasons that I mentioned when we were talking about this movie, I I really think uh, I really think she would she should have taken it. Okay, no, it's actually not that di- much different. But uh, I've got Grey Garson number five, uh, Elizabeth Taylor at number four, Shirley MacLaine at number three. Uh, Melina McCurry number two and number one I have Deborah Carr in The Sundowners uh, I just I don't know just really connected to the performance and it was something different I mm-hmm. hadn't seen from her yeah I mean I, I love her in it as well and I mean like for me the bottom two were so far down and then the top three were just right neck and neck at the top so yes me too yeah so it was mainly my mainly my long-standing love for the apartment and just kind of the rest of the movie as a whole that kind of put McLean over the top for me um, but I, I loved all three of those performances in terms of wider observations I just wanted to mention that the films we've talked about in Best Actress on the whole for me not that great um, I know you love the apartment but if we like Sunrise at Campobello um and Butterfield 8, both bad films. And yeah. it just got me to thinking about the best actor category in which you've got uh, Sons and Lovers and Inherit the Wind and The Entertainer, uh, which are three great, great films. And mm-hmm. uh, just the the dearth of, you know, the, the difference in quality between the two categories, I think, is quite evident in the films. So, so that was disappointing for me this time that I didn't like the films as much yeah. apart from never on Sunday. No, I, I agree. There's definitely, um, and I wonder if that's, if we looked at the nominees, if we would see that trend repeating in other years. Cause I do know, you know, that um, the nominees for best actress are far more likely to be just single nominees as in, yes. as in the nomination for best actress is the only one that the film gets compared to Best Actor, which is um, kind of a an, uh, troubling trend that continues to this day. Um, yeah. And yeah, it tends to... You tend to get, I think, more bad movies in the female categories, which is a shame. Any other wider observations? Um, one thing that I was going to... Um, I was going to post this as a trivia tweet, but I couldn't figure out uh, how to you know, rounded out, but that Shirley MacLaine's nomination for The Apartment was the first time since From Here to Eternity that the Best Picture winner produced a Best Actress nominee. Um, it was a oh, wow. kind of a rare thing. And then after this, it was only Julie Andrews and The Sound of Music and then nothing until Cuckoo's Nest. So it kind of wow. brings into harsh, uh, re- the harsh limelight the lack of strong female roles in the best picture winners um, 
And it's really a trend. I mean, there's here and there, but there's a lot of Best Picture winners that just don't get lead actress nominations at all. And it's kind of sad. Um, and in that in that stretch between From Here to Eternity and The Apartment, there were four Best Actor winners from the Best Picture movies. So it's pretty pretty stark contrast um yeah i mean i mean on the on the other hand at least it kind of brings more films into play to get nominations and um films like for instance l uh mm-hmm. in three or four years ago which yeah. is an interesting one two days one night mm-hmm. films like never never on sunday which obviously wouldn't wouldn't get major awards so at least there's that side of it that's true. The, 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 the troubling thing is that they have to look so far afield for female roles that are that interesting. Yeah. Know? And then you still end up with things like Sunrise at Campobello and Butterfield 8. So. <laughs> you can't win. You can't. No, you can't. Um, and of course, I guess this doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I have to mention that I hate the Academy for making me watch The Alamo as part of my Best Picture oh. project. God, when I got yes. to this year, uh, that was horrible and uh, one of the unforgivable sins of the Academy. Against, I take it personally. I know they didn't do it to spite me, but I still can't help but feel personally attacked. You have to wonder if they watched it or do they just vote blindly for the studio? Because that one's a terrible. Yeah, I, I feel like they just voted blindly and John Wayne kind of shamelessly promoted it and demanded kind of that it get nominated for best picture um mm. and at least they didn't go too overboard and like but it definitely took the place of obviously psycho comes to mind as the best picture nominee that it stole the spot from um yeah just ridiculous and shame on the academy so we have a website, it's categorically, categoricallyoscars.com, we're on Twitter at categoricallyo, and we're on Spotify, Google, uh, Apple, etc. Next episode, we have a guest joining us. Mm-hmm. And what category are we looking at uh, next time? We're looking at the the guest choice of category, which is Best Supporting Actor 1993, uh, which featured Leo DiCaprio in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Ray Fiennes in Schindler's List, John Malkovich in In the Line of Fire, uh, Pete Postlethwaite in In the Name of the Father, and the winner, Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive. Pretty great lineup. It is, and we're going back to the 90s, so, which we, we've been lingering uh, in the black and white era for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exciting to move back a little more modern. But exciting for this one. Very good good films and, and good actors to talk about. And speaking of moving, um, you'll be in England when uh, we record the next episode. That's right. Uh, finally... Uh, we'll be in the same time zone and both in the UK talking about the next episode. So yeah, that's exciting and looking forward to coming to you from uh, well, from wherever I happen to be in the UK at that time. <laughs> but not looking forward to the quarantine. Well, I mean, at least I have uh, plenty of movies to watch to keep me busy while I'm there. Mm-hmm.